Welcome to the Sober Podcast, brought to you by the Sober Network. The Sober Network is actively engaged in revolutionizing the recovery community. We offer fresh ideas, voices, and incentives to impact massive social change. Our technology expertise is best seen in our multiple brands. They demonstrate a thorough understanding of how we get things done. Take us along on your journey and we will help build the recovery capital needed to sustain life on life's terms. Visit us at SoberNetwork.com. Welcome to the Sober Podcast. I'm your host, Jamie Brickhouse. And before we get started, I'd like to take a minute to get the word out about one of our latest product lines brought to you by Soberverse. It's called Sober Life Apparel, where positivity and pride pave the way to a brighter, healthier future. Please visit our website, soberlife.com. That's S-O-B-R-L-I-F-E.com and check out the new merchandise. Our sober celebrity guest today is Dr. Jerry Lynn Utter. Dr. Utter's experiences have left scars on her soul, which she sees as marks of wisdom that have shaped her understanding of human behavior. She tries to understand what makes people do the things that they do, and this curiosity and desire to help others is what drove her to pursue a career as a psychologist. In 2020, Dr. Utter released her first book, Mainlining Philly, Survival, Hope, and resisting drug addiction, which resulted from her desire to share her story and instill hope in others. Thank you so much for joining us, Jerry Lynn Utter. How are you today? Good. Thank you so much for having me, Jamie. I appreciate it. Glad you're on. You know, we often do topic-focused interviews on here, and knowing the uh, work that you do and a little bit about you, I thought um, we would kind of focus the interview around how our uh, experiences in childhood shape us for better and for worse um, as adults. And how did you grow up in a, in a, an alcoholic household? How did that shape your childhood? Yeah, I think it, uh, I think it shaped, you know, not only my childhood, but, but a lot of, you know, how I turned out, you know, as an adult, um, both of my parents struggled with alcoholism and drug addiction at different points through their, through their journey. So, you know, my father started with, with methamphetamines, then heroin, then it was alcohol later in life. And my mom was, was a binge drinker all throughout and got addicted to opioids in the mid nineties and Mm -hmm. struggled all the way through, um, up, up until over the past several years, but then alcohol kind of jumped right back in, back into the picture. So, um, I think what shaped me isn't only the, the the quote unquote bad experiences, right? Because I suffered every consequence of their addiction, of their alcoholism. So yeah. if we were evicted, um, for example, my father was in, was in prison for a period of time. And then when he got out of prison, we lived in a two room efficiency. So not two bedrooms. There was a room where we uh-huh. slept. And then there was kind of a sink, a kitchen sink and a hot plate. Yeah. And the bathroom was in the hallway. And I can distinctly remember my dad um, having conversations with me as young as five and six years old and explaining to me in his words um, what addiction was. And he explained it as a monster that lived inside my brain. Now today that would probably be scrutinized a lot. Um, But as a child, that's how he explained it to me. And he went on to say, you know, look at the life that we're living right now. There was a lot of, my dad had a lot of shame 
mm-hmm. and guilt. And when he was sober, he tried to take opportunities and use his own personal struggles and our struggles as a family to, to educate me. Um, and I just remember him explaining what we would define as genetic predisposition um, to me as a, as a kid, as this monster. And he said, you know, if, if you drink or if you smoke weed, you know, your friends are going to do it. It's going to happen at some point, but you're built a little bit differently because you see how me and mommy struggled. And if you do it, Jerry Lynn, it might be a little bit different for you. you. You might wake up that monster and you see what that monster does. That monster does all, you know, creates all the bad things that have happened. Um, and I just want, I want better for you. And, and I want to see you do better. Um, and that belief that he had in me, um, you know, gave me a sense of self-worth. That's important yeah. for a kid mm-hmm. um, in conjunction with his honesty, I think is really just what shaped my trajectory through my life. Um, so I think, you know, that, that, that's, that's the precipice of kind of how I conceptualize not only myself, but my introduction and to understand what addiction can do. Yeah. Do you think, um, and, and you're not, you did not become an, an alcoholic or addicted to drugs. Is that correct? No, fortunately I did not. Yep. And do you think, um, how much of that is the, is from witnessing your parents' lives and from conversations, uh, like you just described, and then the fact that you're, that you might be predisposed, uh, you know, there's so, so many times you, people are like, well, yes, we can we can see the examples of our parents and we can be told what we can be shown what happens if you drink too much or a drug. And yet the person still becomes an alcoholic because they're genetically predisposed. Mm-hmm. What are your thoughts on that? I think that that's that that can be absolutely, you know, correct. Um, I don't when you look at the textbook definition, you look at the neurobiology of addiction. Mm-hmm. There's two there's two main um things that happen or two categories in order in order to stack the cards against you. The one category is genetics. So I was, I had those cards stacked. It was not only parents, it was grandparents. And then the other is um, external factors, chaotic family upbringing, instability. And I had all domestic violence. I mean, I could, I could, I could literally just do the checks right down the row. Mm -hmm. So, you know, technically speaking, I should be a statistic, but you know, when, when you go and, and you go through a doctoral program and you, and you become, you know, and you do this for a living, you do, a, you spend a lot of time, which I'm so, which can be so annoying with yourself <laughs> and, <you're>, <laughs> and, <you're>, <laughs> and you analyze your own thoughts and your own screwed up thoughts and your own way of thinking. And, um, what did I come up with? Right. Because it, it doesn't make sense, right. I should be the statistic. And what, what I kind of came up with was, was how my parents believed in me mm-hmm. that that that's where it's at like yes your parents can say hey Jamie don't drink it's bad look look at how bad it was you know for me and and look you don't want to be like me but if you don't have this kind of sense of self-worth like I'm worth it like like yeah I deserve not to be like you dad even though I love you or like you mom I think that that's what really kind of helped me because they, their belief in me, especially my father's, you know, belief in me and, and love for me um, really kind of helped me want to listen to him. He was also the kind of dude that was, that was like a force, right? Like when he talked, he had this real deep voice, six, three, mm-hmm. you know, 
very charismatic. And you kind of like, you never felt lectured. You kind of just wanted to listen to him. And you were like, dude, this dude knows what he's talking about. Like he just, (laughs) he had that vibe and it wasn't just with me. It was just how he carried himself. Again, this is somebody who struggled a lot himself, but you know, for the most part was able to kind of present in a very articulate, charismatic way. Also somebody who dropped out in the ninth grade had a ton of his own trauma. Mm -hmm. Um, but I think all of those kind of things together, um, is, is what helped me. Yeah. How did that, um, uh, those experiences and, and, uh, your parents, uh, especially your father's, um, influence over you, how did that affect your relationships as an adult? Yeah. So I think, um, you know, I, I saw some really screwed up examples of relationships. My parents, there was a ton of domestic violence. There was, a, mm-hmm. there was just, mm-hmm. there was a lot of abuse, not so much that came on to me with each other and yeah. the partners that they selected thereafter. I mean, just whatever you can imagine, physical, you know, ver- I mean, it was just, it was nasty. Yeah. Um, so I think when it comes to my own relationships, I, I had my mom, right? So I had my dad doing this whole self-worth education thing. Then I have mom. That's like, you need to talk to someone else. Like we're not the authority. We're a train wreck. Right. I mean, I'm, I'm ad libbing here. Right. (laughs) But, um, my mom was really quick to, when it came to counseling or mental health treatment, my mom was all over that. So my parents finally separated and divorced when I was 12. And I remember my mom, I went to Catholic school. Mm -hmm. I remember my mother calling Cora services. And I would sit twice a week with Mrs. Claudia Carabelli. So and what, what are core services? Core services are like when you're in the Catholic school system, it core services are kind of like the, the extra special education support and the, okay. and the mental health support that you can get. So I would have lunch with this counselor twice a week and was able to talk about my feelings and what was going on in my house. And then my mom's kind of turning me on to that. Mm-hmm. I kept that with me. So when I went to high school, I would speak to Mrs. Janata, who was my guidance, all free services, by the way, these weren't, pay- we didn't have money like, like that. I mean, I was lucky enough to go to Catholic school because I had a grandmother that paid for it. But like, so I, I learned at an early age to that seeking treatment and talking to somebody else is helpful. So I took that all the way through my my education and into my twenties when I, when I started to engage in therapy. And I think that's what, kind of helped as far as like my relational dynamics with other people, because it's a lot of what I talked about in therapy, my relationship with my parents, my relationship with partners. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I Lucky. think that that helped. And you know what? We're going to take a quick little commercial break. Uh, mm-hmm. Everyone stick with us and we'll be back in just about 15 seconds. Hi, everyone. Nate Kelly here, producer of the Sober Podcast. Head over to SoberPodcast.com for more information on the show and for a library of all of our past episodes with your favorite sober celebrities. All of our episodes are available in both video and audio format, and you can also register as a guest and apply to be featured on the podcast. Thank you so much for downloading today's episode and for continuing to support both the Sober Podcast and our Sober Network. Jamie, back to you. And we're back talking to Jerry Lynn Utter. Tell us about how, uh, you know, the name of your book is Mainlining Philly, Survival, Hope, and Resisting Drug Addiction. 
Tell us how Philadelphia plays such a large role uh, in your story beyond just the fact that you grew up there. Yeah. So um, I grew up in, I feel like it's important to kind of share with folks that I grew up in two different sections of Philadelphia. One's the Northeast section of Philadelphia, which is more kind of blue collar. Um, And the other section of Philadelphia is the Kensington section of Philadelphia, which is all over splattered these days, all over the news, um, as far as, you know, being the largest open air drug market on, on, you know, on the East Coast, if not maybe the country. So why is that important? It's important because um, my dad, when my parents separated, you know, we were in that neighborhood when we were living in the two room efficiency, got out. And then at 12, 13, my dad buys this bar. He names the bar utter nonsense, by the way, after my last name. <laughs> and the bar, name. Right. And the and bar is total. And he, he bought this bar when he was sober, bought this bar when he was sober. And it's <laughs> literally, when I tell you, Jamie, it's like, it's in, it's, at the center of the epicenter itself of, of all the tragedy that, that you're seeing down there. I'm not exaggerating. So my dad, um, wouldn't let me out. We lived above the bar and he would not let me outside. He's like, you know, neighborhood's bad. You can't go out, but I'll teach you how to 10 bar. (laughs) So as at 14 and 15, I'm behind the bar in my Catholic school uniform and he's teaching me how to 10 bar the clientele was mainly working people, working girls that were, you know, prostitutes Mm -hmm. and Johns, you know, and their, you know, and their Johns and, you know, kind of just some neighborhood folks. My dad did have a little bit of morals and he didn't let the dealers deal out of the bar, which led to, um, which led us boundaries. Yes. (laughs) Even though we got stuck up at gunpoint twice for that, but we'll leave that, leave that aside. But that, (laughs) that, that was, um, you know, talk about getting a front row seat. Um, and my dad, you know, was very, um, empathetic. I remember um because all the different people would come in and I remember this one one working girl specifically Sarah came in and she had like a medical paper with her and she showed my dad Jerry my dad's name was Jerry too. Jerry mm-hmm. look at this. Can you believe this? And he's like Sarah what what the hell are you showing me? Come on, I'm trying it's late. I'm trying to close. What do you want? And I, I I'm watching my father have this conversation with her and he looks at it and his face gets kind of sullen. And here it's her HIV um test results that she was positive for HIV. And he goes, Sarah, what? And I'm like, why are you showing this to me? And she goes, because Jerry, you're the only person I knew that would actually care, um, care about me and care, you know, that I, that this is happening in my life. And, um, he did, you know, and, and he would, my dad's the kind of person that would try to help anybody out, even though he was so terrible to himself, you know, he didn't help himself out a lot. Um, but that's the kind of stuff I remember, you know, working at the bar, um, you know, people in active addiction, people overdosing in the bathroom, girl, we would find mostly women, but people dead uh, behind on the property of the bar from overdoses. So I I got a front row seat from the clientele, but then it gripped my family as well. Because um, like I said, it during that time when my parents separated, that's when my mom got addicted to, to opioids as well. She went from pain medication to heroin. Uh, to most recently fentanyl, um, but it's been, mm. but it's been sober from opioids for about three years. I'm glad to hear that. How did, how did all these experiences, um, in your childhood, uh, how do they shape how you parent? Cause you're, you have two children. Yes. Yeah. So I, uh, so two, a couple things, I have, a, I have a 12 year old boy named Gregory and a, and I have a nine year old girl named Natalie and, um, I'm scared to death. Because mm. when you when you when you parent, right, or at least when I parent, I want to give my kids everything I didn't have, right? But 
that doesn't inoculate them or protect them from the world that is just because I'm able to provide better. Um, So I start the conversations early, just like my dad did, you know, at five and six years old, I'm talking to them about it. And sadly, my mom has, um, there's a lot of transfer addiction. So my mom went from opioids to alcohol again. And they love my mom because my mom has had longer periods of sobriety, but they see it. Yeah, and yeah. I don't hide it. So it's it's not where I'm hiding it. I'm I'm talking them to about it because they see it. And I'm educate, I'm using my mom the way that they use themselves with me to educate my children and then and explaining to them why I why maybe I don't drink a lot. I don't have a drink here and there, but I'm scared to death. So it's not like I had this magic formula where I'm like, oh, I'm not like I'll have a drink and then in my mind, I hear my dad still, mm-hmm. and I'm in my 40s. I hear my father. Um, because I don't want to, I don't, I'm, I'm afraid that it can still happen. It doesn't matter what age. So I, I take the opportunity to educate my kids and to be honest with them as well. Yeah. I think that kind of frankness and honesty uh, with your, with your kids and just also in general is the best way that we're going to deal with alcoholism and addiction. And I, I remember when Carrie Fisher died, um, her daughter said, Rather than, you know, than, than, than sidestepping the issue, she just said, my mother died from her uh, addiction and mental illness. She lost the battle with those, mm-hmm. with those, uh, you know, and it was so much better, I think, to, to just say outright what happened. Um, yeah. And how did you end up in the field of uh, psychology? Because that was was not <laughs> planned. No. No, 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 no. I was, I was, um, I got into radio, media sales, um, after my undergrad. And, you know, when, when you come, when you don't come from a lot, a lot of how you define yourself, or at least me is is by how much money I could make. Mm -hmm. So it's like, I didn't have a lot. And now I'm, I'm, I'm having success. And that felt, felt great. That that's also another thing that I work on in my own therapy is perfectionism and, and, and associating my value with my successes or my goals in life. And I still work through that, but I, you know, it was through my own therapy in my twenties. His name was Dr. Cohen. Love him. Unfortunately he passed away. And I, and I was like, damn, I could do this. Like he's done so much for me. I can, I think I can do this. And I said, you know what, Dr. Cohen, I think I want to do it. And he's like, absolutely. You want to do it. He's like, you're going to be great. Like go for it. So, um, I, I went through a program and I never intended in on working with people like, you know, that struggle with addiction, co-occurring illnesses. I always thought I was going to have this posh, really nice office where I charge $250 a session and (laughs) high functioning people can tell me about, all of their things the problems right? with their second homes. And yes. Anyway. <laughs> yes. All their first world, pro- not to, you know, not to yeah. minimize that, but yes, all that stuff. Right. And I was just going to sit there and look great and whatever. And um, literally that clinical rotation, those clinical rotations would be listed where you could go. And I, it was like a, it was like a, like a mosquito or a moth to a flame. Like I mm-hmm. went right toward juvenile detention, anything that was like in a forensic setting in the jail setting. Um, any population that was completely discarded or stigmatized in any way, they were my people. Like that, that's where I felt comfortable. And I would, you know, go into the jails and sit across from people and, and, and do psych evals and meet with them and talk with them. And it made me feel good. So yeah, it's great that I do this, but don't let, don't let anybody get it twisted. We do things to help <laughs> others because it also helps us. So in a weird way, 
I felt like I was among my tribe. Um, And I felt very comfortable because they reminded me of my own family and a lot of the people that I grew up with. And um, if I could sit and listen to them for an hour and a half or evaluate them and help help them get access to the right treatment, that made me feel good knowing that I that I was able to make them feel good if even for a few minutes. Which brings us full circle to our topic of how, you know, our our childhoods um, shape our adult lives for better and for worse. And uh, in your case it looks like it's mostly for better, you know, that the way you've come out of this, what is the, and now we asked, this is our final question that we ask uh, almost all of our guests. And of course, most of our guests are usually people, alcoholics and addicts in recovery. Um, what is the best lesson you've learned in sobriety or recovery and how did it help you? But we'll, we'll uh, put a twist on that. What is the best lesson you've learned uh, working with others to achieve recovery? And how did it help you? The best lesson that I've learned is that you don't know everything mm. and that it's very important to keep an open mind. It's very important to remain humble um, and, and really listen and talk to people who are struggling because they're no, no person's story is the same, even though they may think it is. Um, so I think that that's imperative. I also feel it's very important if you're going to do this work to always remain non-judgmental and to remain appropriately empathetic um, because you as as a professional, as a mental health professional, may be the only person left in their corner because of everything that's happened. So um, you don't know it all. Don't act like you know it all. Remain humble and remain empathetic. Fantastic lesson to end a fantastic interview. Uh, th- to all our listeners, thank you for your continued support. Visit us on soberpodcast.com and all places where you find major podcasts uh, to leave us a review, sign up for our mailing list. You will also find the contact information in the show notes for our guest, Dr. Jerry Lynn Utter. And you'll also find out how you can order her marvelous book, Mainlining Philly. I'm your host, Jamie Brickhouse, uh, and you can find me every day on TikTok, Instagram, Facebook, where I tell a true story in high heels. And I'm also the author of Dangerous When Wet, a memoir of booze, sex, and my mother. Uh, Thank you again for joining us, Dr. Jerry Lynn Utter. And thanks all of you for listening and join us next week for a new episode. Thank you for joining us for this episode of The Sober Podcast. We hope that you have found this episode helpful and look forward to you joining us next time. As we continue to grow and implement positive change, we hope that you'll share our podcast with your friends and loved ones. They can find us on all the major podcast directories or at soberpodcast.com. If you have an idea for the show, want to leave positive feedback, ideas, or comments, connect with us at soberpodcast.com. You can also reach out to us on our social media platforms in the Soberverse. We'd love to hear from you. A special thanks to all those who make this show happen. Jamie Brickhouse, our host. Chrissy Senopole, our social media manager. Our sponsor, Dr. J and the Sober Network. And me, I'm your executive producer, Nate Kelly. Join us next Saturday for another story of hope and resilience with a notable sober celebrity. And until then, remember that we here at The Sober Network are driven by our mission to help people get sober and stay sober. Bye for now.